Welcome to Morning Report Top Stories, a selection of news from RNZ's morning news programme. An eight-hour standoff with police in the Christchurch suburb of Avonhead ended late last night with a person taken into custody. Police were at the property on Beatrice Place uh, from Sunday afternoon onwards with a person who was believed to be armed and barricaded into the house. Our reporter Anna Sargent is at the scene and joins us now. Anna... Just tell us how this unfolded yesterday and and how it finished up uh, pretty late last night. So police were on a a property at Beaches Ave in the suburb of Avonhead since early Sunday afternoon. And yes, a person alone inside was believed to be armed with a firearm. And it followed reports that they received that expressed concern for the person's welfare. And some nearby residents were evacuated and police were negotiating with the man for more than eight hours. So yes, by 11pm the standoff was resolved. And one person is in custody and police say no one was injured and now an investigation is underway. And we're pretty certain no one else was involved. This person was just on their own. Uh, That's what the police have said at this point, yes. In terms of neighbours, eight hours is a long time for this standoff in a a suburban street. Have we heard anything from what it was like for neighbours and how long they were out of their homes? I spoke to one of the residents. I've just seen his daughter off to school. Um, he told me he was watching her especially closely this morning. He says that he was out yesterday, and when he arrived home at about 2 p.m., he found his street blocked off by police, and he wasn't allowed back in his house until about 11 p.m., so he stayed at a friend's place. And he says when he arrived back at about 11, most of the police presence was sort of leaving at that point. Uh, he told me the street is generally a pretty safe and uneventful street as is the Avonhead Avonhead suburb in general. So it was a bit of a shock to him to have something like that happen there. And he thinks people will be concerned down the street. He described calling a few neighbours and them all wondering what's going on, what's happening here. I spoke uh, briefly to another man just walking his dog. Um, He didn't have much to say, but reiterated that it was an uneventful street. So people will be concerned. Anna, thank you for the update. Anna Sargent there, our reporter on uh, Beatrice Place in Avonhead, uh, following that uh, eight-hour standoff uh, with police. Uh, one person has been, uh, is due to appear in court uh, this morning, has been charged. Now, the Associated Press's Philip Crowther is in Jerusalem. He joins us now. Good morning, Philip. Good morning. Now, the situation around Khan Yunus and the fighting there, is this... Are we heading towards the the last stages of this conflict, do you believe, given that the the fighting around that area as we make to as as Israel makes its way towards Rafa? Well, that certainly seems to be Israel's focus right now. Uh, they believe that they are in a, a, a next phase uh, of their military operation. What's going to happen in Khan Yunus? I'm afraid it has to be said is likely to be similar to what happened and is happening in and around Gaza City. There is still heavy fighting across Gaza. There is heavy resistance still also in northern Gaza. That's where Gaza City is. Uh, Although whole neighborhoods have been uh, flattened and ground troops have been there for six weeks, there is still heavy Hamas resistance. And we expect that to happen in Khan Yunus as well. Ground troops entered there uh, uh, earlier this month. uh, And that is where most likely there's going to be uh, heavy street fighting as well. Khan Yunus is the Gaza Strip's second largest city. It is in the south, and that is also 
in that direction where a lot of people were told to evacuate too. The fear being that essentially nowhere in the Gaza Strip is safe any, anymore for anybody, including the places where the actual Israeli military told people to go to. And we are hearing the language from aid groups from the WHO and the UN itself of an increasingly dire situation for civilians, uh, in, in particular uh, food. Now, a real concern. Yes, absolutely. From uh, the people on the ground who our reporters are speaking to, and a reminder that for us it's impossible to get into uh, the Gaza Strip, they say that uh, it is now getting hard uh, to get their hands on food, uh, that a lot of people are hungry now. And the warnings are very, very serious uh, from the likes, from the highest levels, from the likes of the United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres. He spoke about the situation again today in Qatar. He says that uh, the humanitarian situation is, quote, fast deteriorating into a catastrophe. The warnings are that uh, this could be a very, very serious situation because the humanitarian aid can't get into the Gaza Strip the way it used to. Uh, there is, it's very difficult to access all parts of the Gaza Strip. In fact, there's only one border crossing that is partly open, and that is the one in Rafah between Egypt and the Gaza Strip. And Rafah is one of those parts of uh, the southern Gaza Strip that was supposed to be at one point safe uh, for residents of Gaza and now doesn't appear to be the case anymore because it is a place that has been bombed and has been attacked by the Israeli military as well. Uh, the humanitarian situation, there is no doubt, is dire in the Gaza Strip and there is also no doubt that it is getting worse. How significant was it over the weekend that the UN Security Council was uh, put up the ceasefire motion, but it was vetoed by the US? Now, how is that being received in the Middle East? Well, it's it's received positively in Israel, that is for sure. It's one of the very few places uh, that had positive words for the United States after its veto uh, at the UN Security Council. Benjamin Netanyahu, the Prime Minister of Israel, says that it was the, quote, correct stance uh, for the United States to have, but it does leave the U.S. isolated diplomatically. Uh, it's uh, The United States is still openly very much supporting Israel, uh, but privately, at least, there have been clearly misgivings from the United States uh, when it comes to the huge civilian death toll uh, in the Gaza Strip. But for now, the U.S. is not budging. It is still the closest ally of Israel. It is even in the last few days, it has okayed the emergency sale of uh, $100 million worth of tank ammunition, precisely the kind of ammunition that uh, Israel is using and that is that is so deadly uh, to civilians uh, in the Gaza Strip uh, right now. Uh, it was a very significant veto uh, by the United States, but Antonio Guterres, the UN Secretary General, says again today, I will not give up. He says that he will still try to somehow uh, get a ceasefire going, the likes of which we saw, of course, uh, just one week ago and that facilitated uh, the exchange of hostages. Just finally, the West Bank, a very fragile situation there. I see uh, large numbers of arrests of Palestinians. The, is, is that holding the situation there? 
Well, the death toll there is certainly smaller, but it is still significant. 267 people uh, have been killed uh, in the West Bank since the start of uh, Israel's operation in Gaza. The latest raid was uh, six Palestinian men who were killed in a military raid by the Israeli military in the in a refugee camp. Uh, the number of deaths is, uh, has gone up there. The number of the violence towards settlers is going up there as well, and the uh, limitations on Palestinians as well. Uh, so what is happening in the West Bank seems to be happening in parallel uh, to what Israel is doing in the Gaza Strip. Philip, uh, appreciate your time this morning. Philip Crowther, the Associated Press journalist in Jerusalem. Well, Labour's $2 billion spent on mental health over the last five years is under attack from patients and clinicians alike who feel that, well, very little has improved. Investigative reporter Anusha Bradley has spent months speaking to people right across the sector, trying to figure out why people are still saying the mental health system is broken despite all of that money. Morena Anusha? Morena Ingrid. Okay, this was a huge amount of money. Tell us what you've discovered. Well, I've made four key findings. First, the even an historic amount of money dedicated to mental health just wasn't enough to meet the challenge. Things were missed or ignored, and little is known about what has actually been achieved. Secondly, the single biggest investment, which was six hundred and sixty-four million putting for putting money for sorry, for putting mental health advisors into GP clinics and other primary settings, has had an impact, but at the expense of other services. Thirdly, there still aren't anywhere enough skilled workers to help the large number of people who need support. And finally, there was very little targeted at young people who are asking for help in ever increasing numbers. So where was the money spent? Well, of the original $1.9 billion package that was announced in the wellbeing budget in 2019, just over $1 billion went to the actual health system. The rest went to various government agencies, such as uh, for housing, for housing the homeless, the abuse and care inquiry, settling historic abuse claims, and mental health support for prisoners. Of the $1.1 billion that went to health, just under half of that went to easing cost pressures at DHBs and fixing up old mental health facilities and expanding some services. And as I mentioned before, before the biggest single investment, $664 million, went to putting these advisors into GP clinics and other primary care settings. This was, this was known as the Access and Choice Program. And this is aimed at helping those with mild to moderate mental health and addiction issues, which was identified by the inquiry as something that was missing in our health system and was needed. And everyone agrees there is a need for such a program, but the evidence is that it has undermined other really important parts of the system. For example, former health, uh, health minister Andrew Little told me that the scheme cannibalised staff from other areas, and I'll have more on this tomorrow. Um, I've also heard from health officials suggesting maybe they should have pushed harder for more funding for specialist services in 2019, and perhaps acknowledging this, the government did invest another $100 million in these services, um, such as like eating disorders last year, um, to be rolled out over four years. And some have also said that the $1.9 billion package announced with so much fanfare was perhaps a bit overstated. Okay, you've talked to a lot of people through this. Some of them have said that was a waste of money. Yeah, the chief executive of the Mental Health Foundation, Sean Robinson, 
there's the billions poured into the mental health system was always doomed to fail. He says this because the Labour government just didn't get the basics right. He says there's no overarching implementation plan to roll out the mental health inquiries recommendations. Health officials do admit government agencies are working in silos with no single agency having oversight. He says there's been no comprehensive workforce strategy until earlier this year when problems have been known about for almost a decade and no up-to-date data on the prevalence of mental health illness in the population. Some of the data we're using is 20 years old, so it's really hard to plan for new services. It, it became doomed to fail quite early on. For the first year, I was very optimistic and then became increasingly concerned at the lack of planning and the piecemeal approach. What is so frustrating for many people is that there was a massive missed opportunity since 2019. We had the the plan, we had the supposed commitment, and we just failed to implement. So Sean Robinson says the Labour government just didn't understand the importance of investing in well-being promotion. This is something the inquiry emphasised. So it's like teaching people how to boost and maintain their mental health, which global evidence shows works. He says he presented a paper to ministers about this in 2021, but it just didn't go anywhere. Okay, so what's Labour said in its defence? Former Health Minister Andrew Little concedes very little. In fact, he says Sean Robinson is the one who's got it wrong. No, he's just completely wrong. And and with all due respect to Sean, what he might be overlooking is the fact that in 2020, we had the big disruptor. And I I can tell you that um, the the budget for 2020 was all pretty much ready to go, which included more and significant additional funding in mental health in March 2020. Pretty much in the middle of March, it was ripped up and we had to focus on just getting through COVID. And so we now have the first ever Minister for Mental Health, um, Matt Ducey. He actually agrees with Sean Robinson's comments, but he's not prepared to make any policy pledges just yet. He says his top priority is to address the workforce shortages. He's looking at how immigration could help in this instance, for example. And he also told me that there are many NGOs that could provide more services to help ease the pressure in the public system. And he'll be looking at how this could work. Excellent. Thank you for that. We will look forward to the rest of your uh, reports through the week. That is Anusha Bradley there. Negotiations for a climate agreement are entering their last days at the UN's climate conference in Dubai. New Zealand's uh, new climate change minister, Simon Watts, is at the summit. He joins us now. Uh, Kia ora, good morning. You've made a speech there. Now, what what have you said in terms of New Zealand's stance and, and what we've signed up to exactly? Yeah, very good morning. Look, uh, we did a national address to 200 uh, countries. My speech very much focused on uh, the global commitments which uh, the COP28 are aiming for, which is around uh, tripling uh, renewable energy, doubling energy efficiency, and also the phase-out of fossil fuels. And New Zealand called for aspiration in regards to those three key elements, uh, and we're working uh, very closely uh, with our like-minded countries, particularly Australia, uh, the US uh, and UK in regards to uh, pushing that agenda. Uh, and uh, yeah, it is it is challenging. I've just come out of a session with 200 of those leaders uh, with the COP presidency. Uh, and, um, you know, we've got a couple of days to go, but, uh, you know, it, it's really at the business end of the negotiations now. How do you reconcile calling for the phasing out, out of fossil fuels at the same time as opening up oil and gas exploration? 
Look, the phase-out uh, conversation is around uh, moving off uh, primarily coal uh, and moving towards electrification. But there is an acknowledgement by, uh, you know, pretty much uh, most countries that for hard-to-abate sectors or industries like fertiliser or steel, uh, that the that it is more challenging than other areas and there needs to be a transitional pathway for that. So uh, oil and gas doesn't count? Consistent with that. Does oil and gas no, not count acknowledging then? Acknowledging that actually, no, in a New Zealand context, uh, we need to move off coal uh, and gas is a better option than coal, uh, but we do need to phase out and we are absolutely committed to that phase out. But uh, you know, the reality is, for certain industry groupings, uh, that solution isn't at our fingertips. But what is what is positive is, is that our policy position around doubling renewable energy uh, is very much aligned with the global uh, stance. And, you know, I've met with the EU today. I had our first bilateral with India. I've met with President-elect uh, Secretary John Kerry and the president of the COP today. Uh, these are one-to-one sessions and uh, what is clear is, is that New Zealand is playing its part uh, and we are also working on behalf of our Pacific neighbours because you know, the reality for them is uh, they're at the front line of this and so we're working closely well, with Australia to uh, advocate their needs. Our Pacific neighbours aren't too happy with us, are they, though? We've, and we've, we've won the Fossil of the Day okay. award over there. We've had some criticism from the leader of Palau. I see um, the Samoan leadership as well also talking about how you can't just focus on renewables without really pushing back on the fossil fuels as well. So what reception have you had from them? Look, their conversations, uh, in a generic sense, are uh, more directed at those countries that are are completely against or are not keen to do undertake any phase out of fossil fuels. I co-chaired a session with the Pacific Island uh, countries uh, yesterday uh, in conjunction with uh, the minister from Palau. That was a very constructive conversation. And, you know, the big thing about the Pacific and Australia and New Zealand is, is that you know, we are all one large family in one regard and we're able to have good dialogue, uh, but we are all committed around, you know, the ambition. The challenge is for some countries around the world that, that have high degrees of fossil fuel use um, or are dependent on that for their economy. Uh, it is a significant economic challenge for them to, to move off that. And I think that's what is where the negotiation is at, at the moment, trying to find a pathway through. Well, let's hope uh, something can come out of that. That is New Zealand's Climate Change Minister Simon Watts at the uh, COP uh, summit in Dubai. The Waitangi Tribunal has recommended that Crown land in much of Northland should be returned to Māori in a landmark report dealing with grievances suffered by the region's biggest iwi, Napui. Now, a portion of the report was presented at Waitangi on Saturday. Now, that focused on claims between 1840 and 1900. The next part will address claims relating to events after 1900. Ngāti Hine Chairman Waihoroi Shortland says the report gives hapu ammunition as they look to restart paused treaty settlement negotiations. He is with us now. Uh, tēnā koe. Tēnā koe. This report must be uh, very welcome and very significant for you. Uh, well, it, it, it reflects on the story that we have told. So um, it, it's no more or no less than we already know. What we have here is, a, is an independent assessment of, of, of the, um, 
the story from Ngāhapu or Ngāpuhi. And, and now uh, we can present it in a, in a way that gives substance to what we've always held to be true. Mm. So, um, you know, it, it, it's, it's one of those things when, when the truth is out there, hey, I'm ready for you. <laughs> the the recommendation concerning crown land, much of that that is in Northland should be returned. Is there much crown land that, you know, what what are we talking about here in terms of crown land that would be available to be returned? Well, pretty insignificant, really. Um, it's about a drop in the in in the bucket in in terms of the north. It's why they created what they call the Ngāpuhi Fund, uh, the previous government, the one hundred and fifty million dollars for investments in the hope that the Crown could accrue something that was worthy of offering back. Now, um, uh, the reality is that what Crown uh, lands uh, remain in the North is is um, <clears throat> so insignificant to the loss of lands prior to the treaty and since the treaty. Um, some of it uh, you know, have, have been uh, through what what some may deem um, uh, sale and, and 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 offer and and and, and payment, but uh, a lot of it was lost um, through claim mm. claims by missionaries, claims by uh, you know the early pioneer people uh, who, who who had to substantiate their lives. But in terms of the crown. Very little. Very little. So does that mean, that obviously means there's going to have to be a, a fairly significant financial uh, compensation, and that is recommended as well, isn't it? Do yes. you expect that if eventually a settlement is reached, it would be the largest that New Zealand has seen? Oh, it, it, uh, absolutely. Um, there are some of us up here who will say, we have the, the, one of the, um, the, the good things of going last is that you have watched everything up to this point. And uh, we know that there have been some significant settlements, not complete in terms of, of what was lost, but significant settlements in places like Hawke's Bay, Kahungunu, and so on. Collective uh, and, and uh, settlements that, uh, uh, by our estimations, have um, already surpassed mm. uh, around $400 million. So what we're saying to, to this government, when you're dealing with, with the hapu in the north, that is the figure we will start from collectively. So $400 million is the starting point? Well, it, it, it can only start where the last, well, the, the last biggest fellow um, agreed to settle. Mm. So we, we've got to go from there and beyond that point. I, I'm, never, I'm not going to say where the set number will end, but we know where the number will not come down below. I understand. And and where are things at in terms of the of a mandate for negotiation? Because obviously people in the north have been waiting a long time for the settlement. There have been a few tro- attempts at it, but is there agreement amongst Hapu and Iwi to come together to negotiate with the Crown? Is that on track? I Well, I think in, in the north here, like in other places, there will be, uh, in, in by my estimations, about five or six separate groups that will that will promote hapu interests in the north. I know of my own group, the Ngāti Hine, were uh, uh, well down the track of securing its own mandate to deal with its own claims 
and it's and and the breaches that the crown um, have uh, made in re, in respect of so, Nazi. Sure, people. sorry to interrupt, but so will you will that continue as sep- as a separate separate claims process, or do you see yourselves coming together in terms of a a Napui wide settlement? Where's no, where's no, it going to go? They will be separate settlements. And what we've said to the government, leave Ngāpuhi to us. Don't try to determine what Ngāpuhi is and then tell us this is how you will deal with it. They tried that, they tried that argument yes. back and they, and they actually got a mandate. And then Ngāpuhi, Hapu of Ngāpuhi said that's not the way to deal with us. And we remain the only uh, grouping that has managed to overturn a mandate. So we're not going to go down that path again. No one up here is interested in a one-mandate um, uh, settlement uh, process. There will be five to six separate settlements. When those are done, then we will decide how to uh, confederate and how to, if, if we think so, sure. to hey. contribute to Angapuhi pool of, 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 of uh, interest. Kia ora. Right. Thank you very much for that. Really appreciate that. That is Ngāti Hinei Chairman Waihoroi Shortland uh, just commenting on that Waitangi Tribunal report. Australia is expected to significantly drop the number of migrants it allows into the country due to the pressure it's putting on housing and infrastructure. In fact, reports there this morning suggest it could be a halving of the number. Now, in the last year, Australia's net migration gain has been over 500,000. Now, here in New Zealand, net migration, uh, the gain was almost 120,000. That is actually a rate higher per capita than that of Australia. Now, increases in housing stocks haven't kept up with the increases in uh, immigrants. So how will New Zealand cope with the infrastructure challenges of high uh, migration? The Prime Minister, Christopher Luxon, joins us now. Kia ora, good morning. Kia ora, Corin. How are you today? Very well, thank you. Good to talk to you. So the issue of immigration, and I think we need to put a proviso on this, that we're not talking about anti-immigration here. What we're talking about is a sustainable level that the infrastructure in a country can deal with. Australia is, is, is taking steps, it looks like, today. They'll announce them later today to, well, the Sydney Morning Herald saying they're going to halve their number because of those concerns. Do you share those concerns given New Zealand's high net migration rate as well? Well, look, I mean, really, to be honest, we're inheriting a system that's been a complete hash. I mean, the first part was that New Zealand's immigration system you know, closed New Zealand off to all immigration for two years at a time when employers were desperately looking for workers. And then Labor opened the floodgates just as the economy was starting to slow. So we're sort of caught in between uh, that piece of it. But you are right. We've got a net migration of 118,000 people. And ultimately, you know, that doesn't feel sustainable for New Zealand at all. Um, and we also need to work much harder at actually getting people off welfare and into work. So what do we do about that? Yes, I mean, if that level was, I mean, everyone sort of expected that spike to come off, but it's not showing those signs that it is. What do we do about that? Because your coalition agreement, for example, has a number of measures which would potentially liberalise immigration even further. Well, what we've got to make sure is that, um, and Erica Stanford's you know, getting ahead around it in the last 10 days, but to make sure that we're working with Immigration New Zealand to make sure that there is audits and checks in place, um, that it's not just carte blanche and that it isn't just uh, keep opening the floodgates and letting anyone and everyone into the country, that it is actually linked around skills and where we have real skill shortages. Um, but as I said also, we have to do a much better job. When we're in you know, net migration of 118,000, but at the same time 60,000 more Kiwis on unemployment benefit and on welfare uh, isn't a good outcome either at a time when there are job vacancies to fill. So you know, we've got to work both sides of that equation. Do you have concerns, and the Reserve Bank raised this last week, 
it said quite explicitly that immigration was starting to put upward pressure on rents. So it, it, are you worried about that? I mean, you're, trying to, you're coming with a whole lot of policies to try and tame rents, you've got migration pushing it the other way. Yeah, well, look, I mean, that, that's what we'll, Erica will be working through. But where we are is essentially, you know, with the two-year closing of the border, um, we had a, a massive challenge around a catch-up and a, and a real spike in immigration that was necessary in order to fill some of those job shortages. But uh, then it was really complete and utter open floodgates. And that's what we've now got to go back through and actually make sure that any immigration is linked very strongly to the economic agenda of New Zealand so that, and the shortage So you are signalling a review there that there will be the potential for tightening things up. I mean, I don't, I'm turning the tap off the wrong language, but you know, you're saying that we can't keep going at these levels if they were to continue. Well, the trick with immigration is to make sure that it's linked very strongly towards uh, our economic agenda and where we have worker shortages and that that has to be job number one so that any immigration is linked very strongly to our economic um, program. And the second bit is actually making sure that we can you know, digest and manage the infrastructure that's needed to support that growth. I think what you've seen in Australia is a plan that was originally to have you know, three quarters of a million people arrive in less than two years. Uh, and so I understand why they are, are, are pulling back. Uh, we also are watching and monitoring very closely that, say, look, 118,000 migration is very, very high for New Zealand. It's the highest it's been. Uh, we understand that there is a little bit of catch-up that's been needed to, to fill some shortages that have existed since the lockdown periods. Uh, but having said all of that, we expect that to be slowing month on month and actually making sure it's linked very strongly to the job shortages. That we Last question. Do we have a target? I mean, is it, is it, we were sort of tracking around the fifty to 60,000, which is still a healthy number, but prior to COVID, is that where you would like to see things return? Well, again, it's actually very hard for any government to, to lay up a number, a hard and fast number. Um, yeah, what we've got to do is make sure that any, any migration is linked very strongly to those worker shortages that we have. We can't always control Kiwis returning or Aussies, um, you know, um, but what we've got to do is make sure that we are getting the settings right. They've gone from being way too restrictive to being way too loose, and, and we've got to find that balance, um, as, and that's the work that Eric mm. will get into in the next few months. Okay, a couple of quick questions. Uh, Gaza, there have mm. been reports of an Israeli New Zealand soldier that may have been killed. Have you had any update on that? Uh, I'm aware of those reports as well, and I know that MFAS is now trying to um, ascertain the details around that. Until they do, I haven't got any more that I can say about it. Okay. Does New Zealand support the US veto of a call for a ceasefire at the Security Council? No, we co-sponsored that uh, resolution that was taken to the Security Council and sadly rejected by the Security Council over the weekend. Um, as we've said before, you know, we really want to see um, immediately New Zealand, you know, a ceasefire emerge in, in, in the Middle East. But there are some real challenges around it. And, you know, we need to see the reinstatement of those humanitarian truces and pauses because that's a good, logical next step in order to getting ourselves to a sustainable ceasefire. Sorry, sorry just it. to interrupt. Uh, did, did you say we co-sponsored that US uh, veto? I'm sorry, I'm not quite clear what that means. No, not the veto. There's a resolution that was put to the Security yes. Council. And the Security Council, uh, the US veto, in the Security Council, but essentially that that was a um, a statement from um, other other UN countries which we were supportive of, um, and um, so we supported the, the call for a, for an immediate ceasefire. That was what we, we were supporting. That going to the Security Council, then the US vetoed it. 
it was a statement around um, a humanitarian ceasefire from memory over the weekend, and um, we were supportive of that statement. It was a Security Council, uh, was up to the Security Council decision, uh, and it wasn't a General Assembly uh, resolution. It was a, a statement, you know, a, a statement. That was sure, but to haven't haven't wasn't isn't New Zealand's position that we're not quite at the stage of calling for an immediate ceasefire that we've, we're saying there needed to be steps taken. So is that not well, a exactly different position? position. Uh, that's exactly our position, and the text reflected that position. But what we're saying is, um, you know, we do, you know, we want to see a cessation of hostilities in the region. It's appalling uh, for all of us to watch. It's, it's traumatising and distressing for everyone seeing the images that are taking place there. But in order for a ceasefire to happen, you actually have to have some things happen. Uh, Cora, the first is it has to cover all the ge- geography area of conflict. Two, both sides have to want to have a ceasefire. And three, you have to have a pathway for peace as you go forward. And so what we're saying is you know, we want to urgently see those steps being realised and taken so that we can get and secure a ceasefire. Uh, a good start would be extending the humanitarian truce, which is broken down. Uh, and obviously um, we've got countries in the region like uh, Qatar, like Egypt, like the US, uh, that are really putting influence on the players to make sure that um, they get to a, to a better place and okay. get into that position. Okay, a couple of other quick questions. Another, it seems as though an apparent leak, second leak, this time on a Treasury document. I'm not sure if it was a Cabinet document uh, concerning regulatory impact statements and the ability for Treasury to have some discretion as to whether they apply them. Uh, Well, firstly, are you concerned about the leak? No, not at all. Um, It's not a leak coming out of Cabinet. Uh, There's two issues here. One is, um, you would have seen last week, um, we had an FPA uh, repeal paper that went to Cabinet. Um, and you, immediately we had MB um, of its own volition um, proactively uh, start a, uh, an investigation as to how that leak could have happened. And then the second thing actually wasn't a cabinet paper per se. What it was is saying on our 100-day plan, when we're repealing government legislation, there is no need for a, a regulatory impact statement um, because it's just it's it's just too much churn and it's activity and it's wasted time. Uh, and you, result, I guess the point is here, and we'll, and we'll move on, is that you can give an assurance that when you actually are put progressing important pieces of your own legislation, they will have regulatory impact statements. Absolutely. So the position that I don't think is that different from what I saw Labour do in 2017, but essentially we're saying, look, it just makes no sense having all the bureaucracy churning on a piece of uh, process that actually doesn't make mm. any sense when we're going to be repealing that legislation. Okay. And so, who's leaking? So who, who, who's leaking against you so early? I mean, it just seems extraordinary well, that you're facing... You, that information was given to Treasury. That was the position of the government, um, which was given to Treasury. Treasury would have briefed you know, hundreds, if not thousands, of, of public servants about uh, that directive from the government, about that there is no need for regulatory impact statements on legislation being repealed. So what are you saying, that it's a public servant? Uh, well, it's definitely not a Cabinet member, put it that way. OK, uh, final question. COVID vaccines. There was a report over the weekend that seemed to suggest that a decision hadn't been made or over whether future COVID vaccines would be free for the entire population. It might be targeted at, at, at risk groups. Are you at the point where the cost uh, is so high that you do have to look at that? Well, it's just that it's currently funded by Pharmac, as I understand it. Um, Pharmac funding is actually due to come to an end in June next year. This has been one of the frustrations with the government is creating time-limited funding or what are called fiscal cliffs. Uh, the reality is we have to continue to fund Pharmac. People rely on those drugs. You can't just say you're going to turn it off on June next year, which is the, the last government's approach or plan. So everything's currently under consideration. That's something that Shane Ritchie will be working through. Um, and we'll make sure that... Um, so it's possible. It's possible that next winter, say, uh, those who aren't in vulnerable groups may, like the flu, still have to pay for a COVID vaccine. That's possible. 
look, I just say to you, we'll work our way through it. But we're just the first major problem we've got is that the government wasn't planning to fund Farmac beyond June next year, which is quite outrageous. I would have put to you. Um, we are working our way through that to make sure that we can get. Uh, flu vaccines, Pharmac vaccines, uh, all of those other, uh, and other. Oh, I appreciate all of that, but uh, you, you, I just want to be clear: you can't rule that out. That possibility that we, you may have to pay a, a healthy person who's not at risk might have to pay for a COVID vaccine next year. Uh, again, those are all considerations. That, in fairness to Shane Retty, new in the role, ten days in, looking at a whole range of challenges across healthcare. Act not being funded beyond June next year, another one. Um, he will work his way through that and work out the best way to, to deliver the services we need to people. Christopher Luxon, Prime Minister, thank you very much for your time. You've been listening to Morning Report Top Stories. 